Hey, everybody, and welcome to Biz Books, where we have conversations about great business books with the authors that write them. My name is Gene Marks, and today's guest is Christopher Mims. Christopher has written and just released, actually, this past week, um, a new book called Arriving Today, From Factory to Front Door, Why Everything Has Changed About How and What We Buy. So, Christopher, first of all, um, let's jump into it. I, I have a great, you know, we are in the midst of a supply chain crisis that's going on around the world. Uh, you have written a book that's essentially about the supply chain, like bringing it down to its, you know, to its very much detail, how a product actually gets to our door. So my first question to you is like, was this whole supply chain crisis like your idea? Was this like a PR stunt or something just to promote your book? <laughs> I, I do sometimes wonder if I'm living in the matrix and I manifested this whole crisis. It's a, it's a, it's pretty disorienting. It is. I, I have to tell you that, you know, for you to, um, you know, to, to come up with, uh, you know, this book at this moment is, um, it's an amazing, you know, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but how long ago did you start working on the book? You know, from conception to now, it's more than three years. So none of this was on the horizon. So COVID, you know, as I outlined in the book, COVID started to break out when I was standing on the dock in Vietnam, watching shipping containers be loaded. And so it was so surreal to go home and write about that because so many goods that we were panic buying in the early days of the um, crisis were, I watched them get loaded onto ships. Yeah, I mean, it is a um, it, it is a big issue for a lot of people, and even now, as we're talking, I mean, I think as as we're having this conversation, there's like close to sixty ships right now that are, um, you know, th- that are off the port of Los Angeles, just waiting to anchor and be unloaded, and then all the things that have to happen. And I don't think people, I don't think people appreciate the amount of work that gets put into. Use the the example of like a you know like a, a USB charger. Um, you know, we just ordered paper towels from Amazon. We are, I feel like taking you through all of the stuff that we order from Amazon. It's insane. Uh, all those things, but we don't really appreciate what goes into, um, getting those products from actually manufactured to the warehouse and then, you know, to our front door. And is this something that, you know, you know, like what, what inspired you? Is that what made you want to write this book is to, to teach people how all of this is done behind the scenes? I think that was a big part of it. I mean, I think from a very young age, I, I, I recalled recently a conversation I had with my dad when I was very young. And I was just like, well, where did this thing come from? And I was like, well, where did the thing that made it come from? And, you know, I've always been curious about this. But what really sparked it for me, besides wanting to know where the objects that I use every day were made and how they got to me, um, I, as a technology reporter, I just realized there was so much more automation going into this space than I had ever appreciated before. Um, mm. You know, almost beyond the level of automation that you have in a lot of manufacturing. And so I just thought, wow, if I am curious about how automation is impacting labor and people's jobs, this is the place to go. This is the lens through which I should try to view that. Sure. So what was the process for doing this book? I mean, how much time were you able to take off from your job? Um, where did you go? I mean, I know that you, you you were reporting from Vietnam, but you've also visited uh, Amazon warehouses. You spend time with truck drivers, uh, cargo you know ports, as well as ships as well. Tell me a little bit about um, the process of putting this book together. So I I had to do it in in less time than I would have liked, but also 
you know, I probably would have spent way too much time writing it if given the opportunity. I only got six months off from my job. And so I did spend a significant amount of time writing it while doing my day job during the pandemic, which was both good and bad. But probably I only could have finished a book like this during a pandemic when we were all locked down anyway. Um, right. You know, but I did have a long incubation period. I bandied a lot of ideas about with my agent. You know, this whole idea of tracing an object from factory to front door was his idea. You know, he was sort of my first editor on this and so it really felt like in some ways a you know a group effort or like a songwriting team going into this it, it definitely wasn't just out of my own head it's funny that you say that your aging gave you the idea as well i mean obviously you you also have been fascinated like you said you know since you were a kid but um we're all fascinated where this stuff comes from so what is first of all like what when you say the journal gave you like six months off is that like um is that like a sabbatical that they give you is that like an unpaid thing is it you know uh you it's, know, and, it's unpaid and, yeah <laughs> okay. So it's unpaid. So they keep your job and they're like, okay. And was it six months continuous that you took off or were you able to take a week and come back to work and, you know, or was it just one, one entire time frame? Yeah, it was six months continuous. I mean, I think that's pretty standard. A lot of my colleagues have written books recently, like Tim Higgins wrote a great book about Tesla, you know, um, Elliot Brown, uh, with his co-author also at the journal wrote a book about um, WeWork, which I highly recommend. It's a very entertaining book. And I think this is sort of standard right. the way they do it at the journal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that as well at other, um, you know, at, at other media outlets that, that I write for. Okay, so let's talk about the book. Okay, um, I, I'm going to give you the chance, Christopher, right now. Like, you know, I ordered. Well, we, we could take a USB charger if we want to use that example. But let's start from the beginning. Let us, you know, I order a USB charger for my Samsung S21 phone that I just bought two weeks ago, and damn it, I had to order new accessories for it, of course. Uh, which I did on Amazon. What happens? What hap What you? Know, how did that charger make it to my front door? Go ahead. So it's important to note that that journey began two months ago and fourteen thousand miles ago. Uh, and the reason, of course, you could get it within two days are AI and prediction algorithms, which pre-ordered all of those goods in anticipation of this moment. Um, but where it begins is a factory generally in Southeast Asia. Obviously, tons of stuff is still made in China, but China has long since moved into higher value goods. So final assembly really gets done in Southeast Asia and South Asia these days. Um, so it's almost the midpoint of the supply chain, right? Because there's all these supply chains that come before manufacture where all the components are being brought together and made. Um, you know, it, it, it's put together by hand. It goes into a box. The box goes into a shipping container, which goes onto a truck which goes onto a barge. It takes an eight hour journey down river, down the Saigon river uh, to uh, an ocean facing port. It is then transferred into the port. It's then sorted. It is then put on a, a, a giant ocean going vessel that is literally the size of the empire state building knocked over on its side. And then, you know, it's going to travel several weeks, it might make other stops and cross the Pacific ocean, which tends to be not too eventful a trip because these ships are so big. Then it gets to the port of LA. That's where we have terrible congestion. Usually there's zero or three ships waiting in a line there. Currently, as you noted, there's 60, which is unprecedented as far as I know. Yeah. Um, you know, then that ship has to be brought in by a harbor pilot, which is this incredibly specialized task. They're paid almost a half million dollars a year for their specialized abilities. And they're actually uh, employees of the, of the city of Los Angeles. Um, once it's brought quayside, 
then um, you know there's this whole dance. You know, one person said every time a ship comes in, it's like throwing a wedding every time. <laughs> and uh, you know, what, the port that I went to, the terminal that I went to, there is highly automated, and that makes it much more efficient. And so. Mm -hmm humans are operating the cranes that are pulling these huge 80,000 up to 80,000 pound containers off of a ship. But then all of those ship uh, containers are sorted by robots, uh, which are all governed by software. Um, you know, it's almost like sorting bits on a hard drive or on an SSD. They're treated in the same way. Then after spending two or three days kind of in that uh, terminal, they're loaded onto trucks uh, which is a process called drayage, where they are brought to, you know, inland um, warehouses. Then the goods are transferred because, of course, shipping containers are so heavy, you don't want to carry the goods in a shipping container to their final destination. Then the long-haul trucking part begins, and goods that come in from the port of L.A., some are moved by train. A lot of the bulk is moved by train, but a lot of the stuff like your USB charger is going to get moved in the back of a truck, and it's going to travel thousands more miles. And then it's going to get ingested into an Amazon fulfillment center, which are the big Amazon, million square foot Amazon warehouses you've seen that are highly automated, full of robots of every mm. description. Um, and then, uh, you know, you would think, okay, probably it goes from the fulfillment center to my house. Nope. <laughs> uh, it's even more complicated. Then it goes through this process called the middle mile, which, you know, a lot of people don't know about. And then um, that's even more automated. And then from the middle mile, it goes to the delivery station where it's finally sorted onto an Amazon or UPS uh, truck or FedEx if you're using a non-Amazon supplier. And then it's delivered to your house, finally. It is unbelievable. I mean, it's the, there, there are so many points in this process that, that could fail. Um, but Christopher, what is, what is Hitler's highway? And why do you mention that in your book? <laughs> um, so the one of the most important components of this whole system is our highway system, yeah, which was, you know, it, 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 it had a military purpose initially, and then everybody thought it was going to, you know, free city dwellers to drive all over the place and move to the suburbs. But it ended up being for freight more than anything else. And, you know, I call it Hitler's Highway because... Um, Basically, as a make-work project to shore up his support among reluctant Germans, um, Hitler accelerated the building of the Autobahn, and it was the world's first fully modern highway with all the features that we would recognize on ramps, uh, right. you know, not quite cloverleaf type structures, but similar. And when the Americans, including Eisenhower, who's credited, of course, with our highway system, went to Germany, they were blown away, and it actually really helped us uh, invade Germany and meet the Soviets in the middle because they got all these tanks onto the highway, and they were like, this is incredible. We can move troops so quickly. We need this because at the time, mm -hmm. America's roads were in such poor condition, and right. Eisenhower came back, and based on his experience with so-called Hitler's highway, people forget that it was called the Reich's Autobahn before it was the Autobahn. He said, we got to get this done. So when he was president, he finally signed this long incubating, uh, you know, uh, set of mandates to build America's highway system without which today we just would not be able to run our consumer culture. So what you're saying is that um, we can we can literally thank Hitler and the Nazis for my USB charger getting to me on uh, this next day that I ordered it. Is that, is that what you're trying to say? I would definitely never that, thank Hitler and the Nazis for anything. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I would credit. <laughs> We're about to have this conversation canceled. You realize? <laughs> yeah. No. No. I just I would credit um, the uh, the 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 German state with accelerating the development of this, just like rockets, right? We we don't get a moon landing without Werner von Braun. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, tell me who is Frederick Winslow Taylor? Frederick Winslow Taylor. He is as important as uh, you know Karl Marx or um, you know the economist Keynes or anybody else. Uh, mm -hmm. I think he's kind of disappeared from our memory of history. He created so-called scientific management near the beginning of the 20th century, um, and right. so he was the first to say, "I am going to use uh, you know time and motion studies to accelerate the pace of work, especially in an industrial context or in a factory." And when you sort of fast forward to the present day through all of the management consultants whom he inspired, you don't get a modern Amazon warehouse without the legacy of Frederick Winslow Taylor. The difference is that whereas he was trying to speed up, you know, steel mills and, you know, the manufacture of arms uh, in government armories, you know, today, obviously, right. we're using technology to speed up, you know, the sorting and the packing of all of the goods that then go onto trucks and get delivered to our homes. Got it. You know what I hold in uh, in in common with with that guy is uh, he was born in Germantown, right, in Philadelphia, which is exactly where I was born and grew up. Believe it or not, <laughs> I, I paid special attention when I saw him. Um, Bezoism, you talked about, or is it Bezoism? Uh, Bezoism. <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue, but yeah, it I mean, it doesn't come up naturally. Maybe I should have called it like Jeffism, but, um, <laughs> you know, historians talk about Taylorism. They talk about yeah. Fordism, which was Henry Ford. It was really invented. It was like a sort of parallel discovery invented at the same time, you know, uh, speed up of work in the context of mass manufacturing. Bezosism is the modern day version of scientific management and Taylorism and Fordism. And the difference is that, you know, whereas Taylor and his sort of followers you know, had to rely on stopwatches. And some of the early uh, folks uh, like uh, Frank and Lillian Gilbreth, who uh, they used, you know, early film cameras to literally watch people doing their job and try to figure out how to speed it up. In Bezosism, you are completely ruled by an algorithm. The algorithm is your manager. And every single thing you do can be monitored and therefore optimized. And an important feature of the way that Amazon does it is that because you're answering to the algorithm, because the rate at which you do everything in the warehouse is being monitored by the algorithm and you're getting dinged right. by software if you mess up, right? It, it manages to create a management system um, is kind of dystopian in some ways, but the human managers get to play the good cop to the bad cop of the algorithm because once the algorithm has said, oh, you're not keeping up the pace, the human manager comes in and they get to empathize with you and be like, oh, I'm going to coach you on how to do this more efficiently. So the human manager never has to yell at you. They never have to be the foreman at the factory during the days of Frederick Taylor who would come in and be like, you need to speed up. So that's one of the ways that it... it uh, I don't want to call it sinister, but in a way it is sinister, right? It's a way yeah. that it kind of is more self-sustaining. Right. You know, you do wonder, um, you know, I mean, if, if Jeff Bezos, did, did, did he come up with all of this on his own or was this just an evolving process that he learned, um, you know, in his management skills? He he once told this famous story and I wrote about it where um, 
when in, in the very earliest days of Amazon, um, he was the one that was packing up, you know, you know, packages to send out with books. And he had a very small staff, like maybe a dozen people somewhere in Seattle. And um, they were on they would dread it because every day they'd be on their knees, you know, packing up these boxes. And one of his employees said to him, you know, why don't we get like shipping tables, you know, and that way we can stand up and do this. And they've been doing this for like six months. And Jeff Bezos was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And it turned into like, it changed their entire process in their office. So I don't know if like Bezosism actually came from Bezos or probably from a lot of smart people that he surrounded himself with. It did. I mean, just like Fordism didn't come from Ford. I mean, right. Bezosism can actually be traced to yeah, a number of different people, but I think the person most responsible for its current incarnation is Jeff Wilk, who was heir apparent to Jeff Bezos, but is going to step down. Um, you know, I think Dave Clark, who is currently in charge of Amazon's, you know, logistics and, and warehousing and e-commerce, you know, he's responsible right. for uh, continuing to enforce it. I mean, his nickname is the Sniper for a reason. He got that nickname because he would skulk around their warehouses and look for people to fire who were underperforming. Um, right. But a number of people sort of came together, and it ended up being this fusion of, you know, the so-called Toyota production system and Six Sigma, which was Jack Welch's management ideology, right. plus automation, right? And Mick Mounts, who's founded Kiva, he came in. All of these people were sort of swimming in the same stew of management ideas and how to accomplish them with technology. And I think together they created this system. But again, I think Jeff Wilk really is the person who is probably most singularly responsible for this. Got it. Um, Christopher, you said in your book that um, we all live inside of a factory. What do you mean by that? Well, supply chains have become so long, including, you know, factories themselves don't really exist anymore. Like all factories are supply chains. So it's a little bit of A equals B equals C type of a thing where, you know, if, if, if everything is a supply chain now and we are the end point of that supply chain, then we're a part of that factory system. So when we get something delivered to our house, it's really like we're the end of the, you know, thousands of miles long conveyor belt right. that created that product. But our consumption is also regulated in these ways that I think are really interested. I mean, I talked about those prediction algorithms, which were the reason that Amazon could anticipate you would want that charger. There are so many ways that we're advertised at where our demand is being throttled up or down according to the availability of goods. Hmm. Tell me, you know, you, know you, you talk about the prediction algorithms. I mean, AI has had such an enormous impact on the supply chain right now. Um, and you've been covering technology for a number of years. How much has this changed over the past 10 years or so? What impact has AI had? Um, on everything from manufacturing through, like you mentioned, port management, you know, and the ship management to Amazon's warehouse. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish there are two main types of AI in, in production right now. There are, they're all prediction algorithms, but some are used to, you know, predict demand and supply and that sort of thing and performance of supply chains. You know, others are just used for pattern recognition. So the pattern recognition ones tend to go into the robots that are making a lot of this possible. So the robots inside the Amazon's warehouses and there they've had a huge impact, right? right? So robots that can sense and respond to their environment are integral to making robotics that can work, you know, with humans alongside them 
in order to accomplish all this super fast delivery. And by the way, Deutsche Bank studied this, and they said that you know Amazon can store 40% more goods in robotic warehouses, and they have also said publicly that it has you know tremendously spread up sped up their speed of fulfillment, right? So it used to be hours, now it's down to 45 minutes. That's all down to robotics and, and AI. Right. Um, on the other side, on the prediction side, so much of, you know, everything from, you know, how do they scale up, uh, how do they flex their workforce during the holiday peak season to how does a UPS driver uh, accomplish the most uh, efficient route when delivering goods to right. you, that all involves AI as well, because you, you want to predict things from year to year, season to season, day to day. What were conditions like this day a year ago? How is the weather going to affect this? What other factors do we have in terms of demand? And you know, every time you open up Google Maps or Waze, there are prediction algorithms at work that are helping you navigate around traffic. That's integral as well. Yeah, you know, you had mentioned the book about UPS's um, Orion. Am I pronouncing that right? Or Orion, yes. their, their on-road integrated optimization and navigation system. Tell us about, I mean, that obviously, you know, leverages predictive analysis and, you know, GPS technology. Um, tell us how UPS uses that. So, you know, UPS uses Orion to solve the classic traveling salesman problem. And that is just if you have, you know, X number of destinations, what's the shortest route for a traveling salesman to travel between those destinations? The problem with this is that the 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 rate of growth of the number of possibilities of routes between those cities grows so quickly that if you get over, you know, like a dozen destinations, the problem quickly becomes unsolvable by any computer on any time scale. And so they spent $300 million initially to try to figure out a system that could take into account, you know, all these different variables, including traffic, and plot out the most efficient route for their UPS drivers while taking into account, uh, you know, factors like, yes, they do still want to not take left turns because those are dangerous and slow them down. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that, I always thought that was a myth that UPS drivers don't take left turns. That's actually true. It is a myth, but they try to avoid it, right? Okay. And so, you know, after spending all of these hundreds of millions of dollars creating this huge system to optimize every single UPS driver's route every single morning, given all the packages that they have, uh, and, and when they need to get there, because some need to get there earlier than others, you know, what they found was they only actually demand from their drivers compliance with the directives of that system 80% of the time. And that's because you cannot replace the on-the-ground knowledge of the driver in the moment, you know, and, and their own judgment. It turns out humans, for reasons we don't understand, psychologists don't mm -hmm. understand, are weirdly good at solving the traveling salesman problem. If you give somebody a scattering of dots and you say, what's the shortest route? We have some kind of thing in our visual cortex or deeper, which allows us to solve that problem with reasonable... Uh, speed, right. we don't know how, but that's, so it's an example of the fusion of human and AI at all times. Right. So Christopher, you know, we, we, we talked about those types of technologies. You also mentioned in the book about autonomous vehicles as well. Um, I know in warehouses, um, you know, they're, they're, I even have clients that are already employing autonomous vehicles because um, the cost of them have come down so significantly. So tell me what you think of you know, self-driving vehicles, autonomous vehicles. What impact do you think they will have on the supply chain in the years to come? I think they're going to have a negligible impact, and I'll tell you really? why. Yeah, I think I think anytime that you see somebody say, "Oh, I just saw an IDC report," they're like, "Oh, this is a this technology is about to be unlocked." It is a complete misapprehension of the actual landscape. 
and and there's a couple of reasons. One is because these systems are n never as good as advertised. And, you know, 100% of the time when I am with these systems or in somebody's car and they flip on their self, full self-driving in their Tesla or whatever, there are major, major issues. So you, <laughs> they can't be deployed. They don't make a difference to the economics of delivery until you can take the human out completely. That's number one. Right. Number two, right. even if they're better well, than they are now. You, but I'm, not to interrupt you, but I'm thinking of that episode from Silicon Valley. I forget the name of the guy who got in some autonomous vehicle at, at Google's. Uh, headquarters and wound up, you know, like in the middle of like a ditch somewhere, in a, you know, in a national forest. But anyway, what was number two? Sorry. Number two is these systems are never going to be perfect. And the current standard for their deployment is mm. that they never get into an accident ever because everybody is afraid that they're going to be the next self-driving division of Uber, which of course killed somebody tragically. And then eventually yeah. they shut it down and then sold it off. So I'll be totally blunt. Until we have laws that say how many people these mm -hmm. autonomous, giant, multi-ton robots are allowed to kill, they will not be deployed. And I don't see any movement in the industry for somebody to say, give us this standard. You know, like when we exceed in an apples to apples comparison, a human mm -hmm. driver under these conditions, we should be allowed to operate. I don't see mm -hmm. anybody asking for that. I don't know why. I think they're a little bit delusional about their ability to get these systems to the point that they're so much safer than humans that we'll all just magically wake up one day and say, oh, of course we see the logic of you deploying them. So there's a real disconnect here, and I think it's regulatory as much as technological. And that is why my very firm conviction after studying this from every angle is these things are going to make a negligible impact. And every time you see, oh, we deployed this, I guarantee you there's a safety driver in there. All of the trucking companies, the exception is Waymo, which are doing low speed, you know, uh, taxi service in controlled right. environments. But, you know, you know, you followed around a long, like a long haul driver, you know, for those books. You saw the kind of lifestyle that these guys have, which is insane. Um, and you know, don't you think after after that experience that there is some role for some type of autonomous, um, you know, you, you technology in the trucks? So, I mean, once they're on a highway and they're going, you know, at a safe rate of speed that they can keep a distance from other cars while uh, that driver can. And by the way, this is probably not this is not going to happen overnight. But where a driver can get rest while the truck continues to drive. Uh, it might be safer. It might reduce insurance costs. It might uh, allow the transportation companies to have less drivers that they need um, and help the overall supply chain, which is what your book is about. I mean, do you not see any type of role for autonomous trucking? In, to in be that? clear, I, I love the idea of this technology. Yeah, I want it to great. be deployed. Yeah, I think it is a fantastic idea. I think that right. the problem is that we have all become numb to the number of lethal automobile accidents that happen every day. And right. if even a fraction of that were happening where the cars were fully under the control of a computer, it'd be headline news every morning and these companies would get shut down until we have a regulatory climate which says this is the bar you need to meet for safety until those laws are rolled out. This is not going to be deployed because it's it's a prisoner's dilemma because the first, let's say it's Aurora versus Too Simple and there's a few others, Volvo's working with others. Um, okay. Until the first company to roll their trucks out and at scale and start killing people is just going to go down. 
they're going to get shut down, or it'll be such negative press that they'll never hear the end of it. So none of them want to go first. Nobody's agitating for the regulation they need to, so that the, you know, the liability and all the rest can be sorted out. Yeah, I mean, for what you say makes a lot of sense. I mean, look at—I mean, all so many larger companies are still afraid to send their employees back to work, you know, for the liability of what you know somebody getting sick from COVID. So, um, you know, I, 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 what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, before we leave the autonomous vehicle, uh, you know, topic though, what what about internally though? What about inside of warehouses? I mean, you've seen that. Um, you you must have seen examples of this when you visited, you know, Amazon's warehouse facilities, even the ports themselves. Is there not a role for that technology there? There is so much. I mean, and it's and it's so much more than we know because there's yeah. this paradox. I need to give it a name. There is this paradox where when a facility becomes sufficiently autonomous, it becomes invisible to people mm. because there's nobody there working there to even tell you yeah. that it exists. So the right. most autonomous warehouses I've been in were the biggest surprise to me because you walk in and it's like ten people and you're like, how didn't how come I didn't know about this? Well, there's nobody yeah. documenting well, it. You know well, you know what? I don't think companies want to advertise that either, do they? Um, that could be a part <laughs> every of it. Company that, every company that is, you know, employing or deploying, you know, robotics technology and others. I mean, you know, the, the real reason is to reduce overhead and you know, eliminate employees. I mean, that's it. But no company will tell you that. It will always be, to, well, we're augmenting our employees and we're helping them be more productive and all that, which I always thought was just a load of bullshit. Um, so, yeah, Gene, you know, I think you're right about that. They're worried about that perception. That's true. Yeah, so maybe that's why it's 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 invisible as it is. And think about Amazon. I mean, my God, if they were, you know, you write a story on some of their invisible warehouses, like you're calling them, um, and the amount of employees that they reduce, I mean, they would come under such fire for it. All right, Christopher. So, um, you know, I, I I'm I'm interested in hearing, you know, in the in the final few minutes that we've got here um, about what you've learned. Okay, I mean, you spent. Jesus, like months of your life going out to all these different places. You visited ports, you visited warehouses, you spent time with truckers, uh, you know, you know, a distribution center for FedEx, you know, you visit as well. So actually, let me go through just a few of these. We, I have never personally been to any of these places, and I'm sure most of your readers haven't either. Okay? So you talked at the beginning of this conversation about like uh, the port in L.A., okay? When you went and visited the port in L.A., we'll start with that. Um, what did you walk away with? Like what? What did you learn that you didn't know about that port that kind of blew you away? Um, and by the way, you're a tech writer, so you would think these none of these things would really surprise you. But what were you like? Like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Yeah, I think I think the number one thing I came away with was just a sense of awe, because I think that we, you know, technology can be an abstraction. The scale of the global economy can feel like an abstraction when you're standing in the middle of something so gigantic. And you are watching, you know, the the actual the movement of all the goods, which actually comprise our economy, right? The material yeah. side of our economy. Yeah. It really impresses on you. It's like I imagine it's like you know doing the trench run with the Death Star or something, and you're like, that's not a moon. It just feels <laughs> overwhelming, right. and yet it also makes it concrete and it makes it personal. And I think that number one thing that I learned was so many of these things feel remote. It feels like, oh, some factory worker in Southeast Asia, what do I have to do with them? Our lives are so intimately connected. We just don't feel it. We don't, we're not cognizant of it day to day. But I just want people to come away with this idea that every object that you touch, a human being made it, a human being just like you, who's not so far away, and it came to you 
through the hands of countless other human beings. And when these systems are taxed, as they are now, um, you know, life can get difficult. So I really came away with that kind of astronaut's, you know, pale blue dot sense of like, oh, crap, like we really are connected. And if we take sure. these systems for granted, we do so at our own peril. That's great. Um, final thoughts, Christopher. You know, you know, I was born just to date myself in 1965. Okay, um, the world was a lot different back then when it came to the distribution systems, and I don't know how much of this actually existed back then. Uh, you know, based on all the work and the reporting that you've done to write this book. Where do you think it's going? Like when, you know, 20 years from now, what would you expect to see? What type of changes do you think um, are going to be happening to the way goods and products are moved around the world? Yeah, I mean, first off, prediction is always a fraught enterprise because no one could have expected what happened in the past 20 years. So right. I, I couldn't deign to predict what will happen in the next 20. The only thing that we can predict is that I think we're in a period of unusually fast change, which is why I wrote the book. Ultimately, I was like, I can't believe, like, you know, for all of human history that we had, like, civilization and were trading and had cities, you went to a place yep. and you bought goods or you traded with shells or money or whatever, and e-commerce completely blew that apart, and it has changed the way that we shop and demand goods and the way that we're connected to where those goods come from. So, you know, I mean, I think the future is more of what we have now, more ordering online. You know, it's going to be supply chains that are just as long as they are now. It's going to mean more and more supply chain disruptions because the longer your supply chain, the more vulnerability there is. I think that we're all going to have to kind of get used to that. Like, we've lived in this very halcyon period of like, oh, I can get literally anything tomorrow. It's not always going to be like that. I mean, I think that in some ways there could be some relocalization of supply chains like we might start doing more manufacturing closer to home to eliminate some of these liabilities um but overall i i just think it's going to be more of the same it's more of what we have now amazon is definitely going to become america's largest employer a second only to the military and they're going to have a bigger and bigger impact on our lives not just in how we shop but in terms of just the weight of their net employment, you know, millions of us are going to be working for Bezos's company and shopping at the company store. What an impact that makes. You know, it's funny you just mentioned about history. And, you know, when you think about it, Christopher, like the, um, you know, since Egyptian times, thousands of years ago, 5,000 years ago, you know, up until, honestly, like 50 years ago, you know, most products and goods were shipped the same way. I mean, you know, if you were in the East India Trading Company in, you know, the 18th century, um, your practices were not that much different than the practices of the Egyptians and Romans from, you know, two to 3,000 years before that. And now, because of technology, because of AI, um, because of some all, you know, the way the world has changed, think about all the things that are different that have changed in that whole distribution system just in the past couple of decades. Um, so it's going to take a lot of getting used to, I think, for both companies and consumers, you know? And um, don't you think if you were to write this book 10 years from now, it, it would be a completely different book? Um, it would be different, but I, I think that um, one of the things I deliberately did was I went to the places that were the most technologically advanced because some of them are 
like the port that I went to, it's the I went to the most automated terminal in the United States of America. So right. what I saw there, ten years from now, there'll just be more of it. So the book that I would right. write then would be like, okay, this is now the norm. But in terms of the descriptions of what I saw, I think that they would be the same. A lot of what we're seeing now is the technology has been developed. It has been not perfected, but it's good enough. And now we're in what some economists call the deployment phase of technology, where it goes from early adopters to absolutely everywhere to ubiquity. And of course, that's when it really transforms our daily lives. Yeah, I, I really agree with you. Um, Christopher Mims is not only the weekly technology columnist for the Wall Street Journal, but has written a great new book uh, called Arriving Today, From Factory to Front Door, Why Everything Has Changed About How and What We Buy. Christopher, I want to thank you so much for joining me. It's a great conversation. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm a big fan of your columns and, and the work you do at the journal. So uh, this is your first book, I think, correct? Yes, first book. Any more planned? I have several in the back of my head, but I tell you what, it's like, it, you know, I don't know if you have kids, but it's like a birth, you know, and now I'm like in yeah. the postpartum phase and I have to, I have to relax yeah. a little bit before I can think about the next project. Yeah. After writing a book like that and then seeing the impact that it has, you know, on supply, it's kind of like PTSD, you know, right now. So you're just trying to get through it and, and, and get it out there. But it was a wonderful book. So thank you. And I wish you all the best of success with it. Everyone, thanks for watching. Uh, this is BizBooks. Uh, we'll talk with great authors about the great books that they've written uh, related to business. My name is Gene Marks. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you on the next program. Take care. <laughs>